Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode of the show is Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning, Ward. What's going on? What's going on? Well, I was just looking uh, out our backyard. The uh, construction of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center continues apace, um, and they're they're moving big, heavy things, breaking up concrete now. Uh, they took out the the dumpsters from the demo of the first and second deck, and there's like giant. Uh, well, the third deck. They've uh, they've gutted the third deck. The third deck. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, first and third deck. Yeah. First and deck, third. Yeah. yeah. We're on the we're on the second deck right now. Yes. We're currently on yeah. the second deck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's kind of confusing. It's a bit like being in the shipyard. It is. Know? Exactly. But uh, where am I on the ship? We're moving people around, and uh, yeah. So uh, a couple of other things going on just um, behind the scenes and the staff. Uh, tomorrow, we're sad to uh, to say farewell to John. Hoppy, who is our digital content manager for Proceedings and Naval History, and uh, he does a lot for the entire Naval Institute. Our new website launching was uh, was a lot of effort by John. Uh, he's leaving us to uh, go get married and move up to Philadelphia. Uh, he's got a job with the uh, he'll be starting a job with the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is a great gig for him as a digital librarian, digital collection, I think custodian. So doing some uh, some you know his work as a as a, he's got a degree in library sciences. But we're interviewing some. Um, people today and tomorrow for that job. So digital content manager, website uh, design, working with Unleashed, et cetera. But this is, you know, we've we've talked about this a lot with our board and we've talked about it a bit. Um, we've seen, you know, for proceedings alone over the last three and a half years, uh, online page views have gone up over 500%. Uh, and that's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, right? And, uh, you know, thank you to our, our readers and our listeners, and uh, but also thanks to this, those on our staff who aren't, aren't forward-facing. They're inside, they're, they're making yeah. the website work. We're embracing they're, the digital domain in ways that in we, previous... That we never had. Right, right, right. And, and so, as we have told the podcast audience before, you know, stand by, we're shifting into other gears as you've just described, the data tells the tale of the over the last, let's just say, 12 to 24 months, including the growth of the podcast. And, uh, you know, we're treating the digital as, uh, in some ways, the principal medium. And that's uh, kind of a new look for an organization that's been around and been publishing since the late 1800s. And, and so it's very exciting. Uh, the audience and membership has responded in a very positive way. And uh, just what we're saying is we're not even close to done yet. So stand by for uh, for new things and, and new products and, and new methods of impact and engagement that are going to really do the mission. None of this is a departure from what we call Warden's Intent. But it is exciting. And, and your team leading the effort is uh, is is really great. Uh, another thing that is just on my mind right now, because it, I've had some emails in the last uh, 24, 36 hours on this topic. So there's a uh, uh, a gentleman who is a retired naval officer from a Latin American country uh, who submitted an article uh, for proceedings uh, that uh, touched on the, the topic of RIMPAC and, and international participation in RIMPAC. You know, because it was written English as a second language, as the staff read it, we're like, we think he's saying this, but we're not really sure. So I reached out to him and I said, hey, it appears that you're saying that nations like yours um, that do a lot of trade with China 
uh, should be very cautious about proceeding with participation in Rim of, Rim of the Pacific, RIMPAC exercise going forward. Is that really what you're saying? And he came back in an email and said, yes, that's what I'm saying. So that is, uh, to me, rather alarming because, you know, we, I think on, you know, U.S. Navy, we see the Rim of the Pacific, the largest exercise in the world as a, um, you, you know, it's, it's a significant, exercise. It's a significant statement about unity of effort in the Pacific. Uh, and in the last couple of years, it's been a, a big statement about how the international community is preparing itself to, you know, sort of push back or defend against Chinese hegemony. And and now, um, you know, we have an indicator here that uh, uh, at least one of those nations uh, is saying, boy, the pressure we're getting from the Chinese uh, for RIMPAC about participating in RIMPAC is really, um, it, 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 there's a lot of pressure. And we should proceed with great caution because China is now our, our number one training, trading partner, right? And so that effort that we've seen in, in, you know, many parts of the world to divide and conquer, uh, to... Um, undermine U.S. relations, undermine U.S. alliances continues, and now it continues on this side of the Pacific, not just in the Western Pacific, but in the Eastern Pacific in Latin America too. So I, I find that of, you know, that news to me this morning to the extent to which that's happening, and and also quite a bit of concern. Uh, on another topic, just uh, again to reiterate, the forum is not inherently political, um, but there uh, uh, there are some things that probably bear discussion in the most recent is what's percolating uh, about Admiral Green potentially asking for Chief Gallagher's Trident back, if that's the way that's going to go down. And uh, the Navy's Chief of Information, Admiral Brown, has a Twitter account that's uh, that's pretty active and, and uh, topical. And, and uh, you know, Admiral Brown, who I've known for some years, is, uh, to my eye, doing a great job with the appropriate engagement using uh, that, that medium. And so, Five days ago, after the president, quote-unquote, pardoned, uh, three folks that had been accused had found guilty, actually, of, of war crimes. One of them was, was Chief Gallagher. Admiral Brown tweeted this, As the commander-in-chief, the president has the authority to restore, restore Special Warfare Operator First Class Gallagher to the pay grade of E-7. We acknowledge his order and are implementing it. End of statement. So there was a lot of buzz about the fact that he parsed that out to call him an E7 and not a chief, meaning, okay, we're going to do what we're ordered to do by the commander in chief, but there are realities inside the Navy where we're going to sort of do some housekeeping in terms of under the auspices of good order and discipline. So um, I think he intentionally called him an E7 and not a chief in that. And that chief is this, you know, vaunted title. And to the Navy's eye, uh, Gallagher has disgraced himself to the degree that uh, that they don't want him to wear the title of chief. So, meanwhile, this week now, Gallagher has either directly or indirectly accused Admiral Green of anti-Trump sentiment. Um, and now it seems like there's a battle brewing. Um, and so you can imagine how this would play out. You, you might also uh, sort of title this uh, Revolt of the Admirals Redux, right? The last one was in 1948. So just 
again, as we talk about topics here that are relevant to the open forum and what's in our lane, what, what would be in our lane is, and this is a completely apolitical statement, the idea that the head of Navy Special Warfare may wind up resigning his commission if pressured by the, the president to reverse this decision to yank E7 Gallagher's trident. And then you just start to imagine you work your way down the chain of command until you find somebody who can stomach it, you know? And so we teach ethics here at the Naval Academy. And among the things are, if you can't abide by a lawful order, you have basically, well, two decisions. And I misstated the premise, but uh, if you receive a law, uh, what you think is an unlawful order, you can either carry it out or you can resign your commission, right? You don't do other kinds of passive-aggressive things as a as an officer. Well, you can question it. I mean, you, okay, yeah, right. Yes, you, you can question yes. it, and you can go you can go up the chain of command and say, right. "Hey, I, I don't think I don't think this was a lawful order." Right. right? Yes. Uh, um, so it seems like we may get to the point in this one where uh, Admiral Green may may wind up uh, resigning his commission, and then. Who fleets up and do they, at what point, it's almost, you know what the analogy is, it's almost like the debathification of post-invasion Iraq, which, you know, we start to get into loyalty oaths and things like this. And so, again, no politics, just in terms of the 30,000 foot view and what may wind up being proceedings articles three, six months from now. It's just, uh, and I don't want to be trite and say, use the word fascinating, but it really is remarkable what's what's percolating here. So stand by, more to follow. Right. And I know uh, Admiral Gilday, the CNO, uh, has so far backed- And SECNAV. Right. And SECNAV have backed uh, Admiral Green's uh, authority decision. and yes. decision to do that, right? That, that within his force, within the Naval Special Warfare Force, he has the authority to, to have- Trident boards uh, to grant and also to rescind uh, the, the the trident, and so uh, that's what is uh, at play right now. So right. It, it will be interesting to see. How so that, watch how that US and I out. News because right. they're on the beat, um, and then again, when our products we we have today, we have you know next month and beyond. So it starts with US and I News, and then it it turns into a proceedings article potentially. So just stay stay tuned on that one, yep. which is a great segue. To our current guest. All right, let's get to our guest. So our, on the line today from Mexico City, Mexico, Marine Corps Major Brian Kirg, who is the winner of this year's Marine Corps essay contest. His article, What Does the Navy Need from the Marine Corps, is in the November issue of Proceedings. It starts on page 20. And it's uh, the, the bumper sticker is Align the Commandant's Planning Guidance with the Navy's Strategic Vision. So Major Kirg, thanks for joining us uh, uh, on the podcast today. Gentlemen, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. We talked about as we as the magazine, as the November issue came together, and we were able to get a two-page commentary from the Commandant, which precedes your article directly in the magazine. So his is on page 18 and 19, which says, together we must design the future force. Uh, and before he had written that, you had already written your article and had 
gone through and been selected as the as the winning essay. But I don't think we could have had a better match for what the commandant had to say in his statement in proceedings, and then your your winning article from the Marine Corps essay contest. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what what you wrote and then and why you wrote it. So if I could just set the stage, I'll start by um, explaining the theme of the whole article. So I'm going to point your listeners to a, a visual medium, if I could. Um, so just imagine that iconic scene from 1989 romantic comedy, Say Anything, starring John Cusack and Ione Skye. Uh, and many of your listeners might have seen this film, be, be familiar with the scene at least, but it features John Cusack, and he's holding a boombox outside of Skye's house. So what's a boombox? Explain what a boombox is to our younger viewers. <laughs> oh, thank you. So it's, it's a, a, a large device with two speakers wherein you might insert a, a tape that plays music. Um, so I, I didn't even think to explain that. So <laughs> carry there he is. carry it on your shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> he's playing this big device that plays music over his head, and he's blasting Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes because of its significance to their relationship. And, and he's trying to win her buy-in into their relationship because there have been some significant obstacles. Now, tying it into the article, in this scenario, John Cusack is the Marine Corps, Ion Sky is the Navy, and the song on the boombox is Naval Integration. Um, <laughs> I like I'm it. glad you appreciate the humor there. Naval um, Integration is Peter Gabriel. <laughs> That's great. I, I think so. Uh, and uh, that, that was not a Brian Kirk original. I have to give props to a friend and colleague of mine, Major Pat Mahoney, who is a, a master of memes, and he created that one himself. I like it. Nice. Um, so that kind of took the, the whole theme. But if I could talk about the genesis of the article, I'm going to have to uh, take a few steps back, and it's going to be uh, a bit of a longer answer, so so buckle up. So did you just say genesis credit. of the article? Because we yes, know sir. we know that Peter Gabriel was the frontman of Genesis. See, you're tying it all it, together. It, it was deliberate. Thank you for catching. Yeah, that. yeah. All right. Well all done. Right. Well played, sir. <laughs> so, also have to credit a lot of other thinkers. So, there's been plenty of of other people much smarter than me wrestling uh, with some changes going on in the Marine Corps. Um, and if I could credit briefly uh, the Training and Education Command Warfighting Society, uh, some members including. Lieutenant Colonel Nate Dimachowski, Major Ryan Pallas, uh, Navy Lieutenant Joseph Hanacek, Captain Walker Mills, and uh, just a slew of other people. Uh, to include folks in my own uh, occupational field, looking at this from some communications aspects, including uh, Captain Bill Hawkrine, Captain Naomi May, Major Kelly Haycock, Major Jeff Robichaud, Major Adam Law, Captain Kevin Hesse, lots and lots of other people. Uh, and so this really uh, generated from lots of conversations with these folks and other things going on in the national security uh, forum. Um, so if I could turn the clock back to March, I, a gentleman named Major Leo Spader, he's a logistician and the MAGTAF planner, he wrote an article that just blew up on War on the Rocks called, Sir, Who Am I? And this was an open letter to the then incoming commandant, General Berger, and it addresses the plethora of identities that the Marine Corps acquired uh, and identified the problem the Corps is having and trying to be all things to all people, I guess more accurately, all things to all combatant commanders. And this is very difficult because it's impossible to do. And uh, from his position at headquarters Marine Corps, he noted some initiatives to sell the Marine Corps as a general purpose force, as an expeditionary advanced base or EBO force, as pacing itself against China, as progressing without any pacing threat because it could be ready for anyone, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, again, it was just this, this multiple personality disorder. And ultimately, he asked the incoming commandant, sir, who are we? Uh, and specifically, 
tell us if we are naval in character or naval in purpose, as this can actually help inform and set priorities. Now, this piece it just struck a nerve, at least within the Marine Corps. Um, as a personal example, I was attending a formal school when the piece got published, and it was immediately signed as required reading. Uh, one of our guest speakers used it as a subject of one of the classes he taught, uh, and then very quickly it was cited in follow-on pieces that appeared in other defense-related publications, websites, social media. It even caught some AP news reporting. Um, to shamelessly promote myself, uh, I also published a piece with War on the Rocks not long after, titled Russell's Century-Old Plea for the Marine Corps, and that discussed the historical parallels of this current issue with the 1916 plea for a mission and doctrine that was published in a 1916 volume of the Marine Corps Gazette. At that time, then Major John Russell, he asked largely the same question as the Corps was grappling with largely the same issue. And thankfully, the question was answered by the development of amphibious warfare doctrine, both for defense and seizure of advanced naval bases, which created a key line of effort uh, for victory in the Pacific. So this question of who or what is the Marine Corps supposed to be succeed in the future fight. Obviously, if there have been precedents to this, and currently with Leo Spader's piece, it, it had the organization absolutely riveted. And then General Berger assumed the officer of the Commandant, and he immediately released the Commandant's planning guidance, or the CPG, and oh boy, he answered that question and then some. So here, at this point in time, is where the events that were happening, uh, that generated the article, start to appear at the outset of the article itself. And I don't want to recap the entirety of the Commandant's planning guidance. It's one of the most robust guidance documents any Commandant has released at the start of their tenure. The key points address the very pertinent questions that had been agitating Marine Corps leaders that led to Leo Spader's piece, that led to all this discussion. So critically, what does the CPG call for? Um, so I'm going to focus on two things. Primarily, that the Marine Corps could should reorganize itself as a naval expeditionary force in the manner of the, the previous fleet marine forces, and that Marine Corps forces should be able to operate as an extension of the fleet. And I think of it as turning the entirety of the Marine Corps into a type command or a TICOM. So, for example, if 7th Fleet was tasked to ensure sea control in the South China Sea, 3MAP would be employed as an extension of 7th Fleet to achieve that end. And the ramifications of these two initiatives, are, they're absolutely incredible. The Commandant is making force design his number one priority, so much so that he's willing to divest of structure to free up resources so that the Marine Corps can be built in a way to support Division of the Corps as a naval expeditionary stand-in force. Uh, also, hey, naval integration, the Corps should not be focused on its individual status as a service so much as its role in working together as a cohesive whole with the Navy. And critically, you can go about doing this in a number of ways. And it's very, very important that the right minds or the right expertise backgrounds work this out and that buying is generated from stakeholders, not just the Marine Corps, but the Navy as well, and that they grab hold and get in the game. And now we come to the crux of it, all right, because across the Marine Corps, at every echelon, from headquarters Marine Corps to MARFORS to MEFs, even to 06 and 05 level commands, uh, people are fighting tooth and nail to figure out this naval integration piece. And this isn't to say that everyone's in lockstep, because what naval integration is and what it means is also being intensely grappled with. But either way, we're all in the kitchen trying to cook this meal called naval integration. And talking to many of my peers uh, and some from my own experiences as we're working through this, it's not clear that the Navy is necessarily bought into this idea or that the Navy writ large as an organization is also working toward 
naval integration. Now, part of it is the Navy is perhaps rightfully so more concerned with strategic assets like nuclear submarines than it is with using landing forces to ensure sea control. And you can make an argument that that's, that's the right priority. Uh, part of it may be a lack of understanding of what naval integration is supposed to offer, particularly the expeditionary advanced space operations or EBO concept and, and what EBO is. And in some circles, the idea of naval integration appears to be, uh, I, I would go so far as to say dismissed uh, by some leaders who should be bought into it. Uh, and if I could give you just one uh, personal example, uh, I was recently part of a month-long operational planning team dealing with how to integrate additional Marine Corps personnel into naval forces, which included whether to assign them directly to ships or to assign them first to expeditionary strike groups and, and all the ramifications that either COA, course of action, uh, would entail. And the outcome of the decision by the appropriate general officer would have immediate impact for either three ESG commanders or for 35 different ship commanding officers. And at the decision brief, the general kind of stopped everything and asked, hey, have we had any Navy folks in the room? Uh, what do they say? What do they want? And those submarine officers were representing Navy commands, like myself, I, I work for and represent U.S. Fleet Force Command. Um, we weren't sailors. Uh, we didn't bring the same expertise. You know, me as a, as a Marine with 16 years of experience, I don't bring the same expertise or buy-in as a Navy officer with 16 years of experience. And we didn't necessarily have the official positions of the appropriate blue side commanders. Um, and this was despite advocacy for that participation and for that buy-in. And this is just one example, but there are many, many similar anecdotes. Uh, and though anecdotal evidence is not ideal, there comes a point where mass becomes a quality uh, in its own. So going back to the CPG and force design, the Corps might be making the best spaghetti the Navy has ever had, but for all we know, the Navy wants pizza. And it's going to be real ugly if in four years we have successfully transformed the Marine Corps to be a naval expeditionary force that is EBO-capable, that can be an extension of the fleet, if this does not support the Navy's vision. Hence the question, what does the Navy need from the Marine Corps, which led me to write the article. So you point out a couple places that the uh, former CNO, Admiral Richardson's design 2.0, the the design for maritime superiority, doesn't even really mention naval integration or Navy Marine Corps integration, except that, you know, sort of very general and very short terms in a couple places. And so, um, we, you know, and you threw out there in your in your uh, long introduction, which was terrific, really, um, you mentioned a couple of um, analogies. You used the... Uh, uh, the movie analogy, you move, you use the uh, pizza versus spaghetti analogy. And when we were reading your article, uh, we were reminded of the uh, 1992 film, A Few Good Men, where Second Lieutenant, played by Kiefer Sutherland, uh, captured an extreme version of the Marine Corps' version uh, of sort of post-Cold War emphasis on independence from the fleet when he said, I like you Navy boys, every time we got to go someplace to fight, you always give us a ride. And uh, so that was another thing that sh I think sort of showed this division um, sort of between, you know, the, the Marine Corps, hey, Navy, get us to the fight. We'll go ashore. We'll do our thing. And the Navy was sort of like, yeah, yeah, we'll build 38 amphibs, uh, you know, per congressional guidance. And we'll constantly have this amphibious force to get so many Marines and equipment, you know, to a fight. But but it's not a real dedicated, integrated effort, right? And then that was exacerbated 
you know, after in the post 9-11 world, when, when Marines operated heroically, but very independently from the fleet, largely ashore in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, with some, I mean, new floats continued, right? Yeah, but they were part of ISAF, right? I mean, they were yeah. in a completely different construct. It, very, very different construct. And so now coming back together, I'm, I'm curious, Major, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of Marines in the kitchen trying to prepare this dinner. Uh, so as, and you, you know, with 16 years in the Navy, I mean, I'm sorry, 16 years in the Marine Corps yourself, much of that focused on Iraq, Afghanistan, South Asia, you know, being a second land force is from, for young Marines and mid-grade Marines, is this idea of getting back to naval roots or emphasizing naval integration, is that idea, is it captivating? It is, is it, oh my God, yes, that's what we need to do? Or is there a debate? Like, uh, I'm not so sure this is what we need to do. Well, it's uh, very interesting you bring that point up because uh, it's, I mean, I would say most of the force is very, very energized uh, about the same idea. But um, there's also uh, some pushback uh, from the Marine Corps side. Um, and a lot of this has to do with, um, again, uh, this identity that we've been able to develop uh, of our own independence and our own componency. So I would say the, the greatest criticism, and I've gotten a lot of feedback, uh, a lot good, uh, some far more critical. Um, but the greatest uh, bit of criticism has actually come from the Marine Corps, not from the Navy, even though you might, you know, from the title of the piece or the thrust of the piece might, might say that I'm, I'm you know, throwing shots at the Navy. Um, so Marine Corps critics, um, they're not just responding to my piece in general, but to the general thrust of the Commons Planning Guidance, as you noted, with this push toward naval integration. And they have a concern that the Marine Corps is completely subordinating itself in its entirety in all areas to the interests of the Navy, and that this somehow risks the independence or the long-term utility of the Marine Corps. And these aren't just for parochial fears, although there, I would say that there's an element of that. Uh, but, for example, that uh, some of the years-long processes for change that exist in the Navy uh, might bleed into the Marine Corps, or that, uh, again, this might just be looked at as, hey, here's 186,000 more bodies that can do what a bunch of blue suitors think and not necessarily what the green suitors think, and what are the ramifications of that? And, and to that criticism, uh, I'd offer this. You know, we at the Marine Corps, we've done a good enough job ourselves at risking our identity and utility for the very reason that, I gen that generated the identity crisis preceding the CPG. Uh, and we as a service were trying to do everything very well uh, because of, again, banging our, our pound in our chest and our independence and, you know, us Marines, we can do it all, uh, consequently stretching ourselves uh, far too thin. And we stuck religiously to the model of the Marine Air Ground Task Force, the MAGTAP, as our, as our principal warfighting element, such that, you know, it's arguable that we became less agile and responsive in some ways for combatant commanders than even the Army. So uh, one of the critiques of the brigade combat team in the past was, hey, if you want one soldier, you're getting an entire BCT. Uh, and now we often find ourselves like, hey, you might just want a, a single infantry rifle platoon as a combatant commander to support X, Y, or Z. But we here in the Marine Corps, we're like, oh, you want one platoon from special purpose MAGTAF wherever? You're going to get the whole special purpose MAGTAF whether you like it or not. And that, you know, really affects our agility. Similarly, we invested in this idea of the two Marine Expeditionary Brigade or the two MEB Joint Forcible Entry Operation, the two MEB Jafeo, despite the anti-access area denial or A280 threat from likely adversaries that made such a model untenable. So tying our identity to the Navy through a redesign toward being a naval expeditionary force that is an extension of the fleet, though it narrows us a bit in scope, it gives us a left and right lateral limit to excel in a mission that makes sense 
and that provides a greater capability that is needed now and in the future security environment. So General Neller's, you know, each commandant has sort of his his imprint. General Neller's was that it might be harder to get to the fight than it had been in previous eras. You know, the post 9-11 world, it was assumed that we'd have peaceful steaming to get to the AOR. And, and then, you know, as Bill just said, the, uh, the Mew or, uh, whomever would just go ashore and hang out at Camp Rhino or, uh, Camp Leatherneck or whatever and just kind of stay there. Um, and it wouldn't really be a seaborne force. Um, and, and so, um, so that was like, we're going to have to fight to get to the fight. And that was what Neller was, seemed to be focused on. And in fact, in the same issue, the November issue, the, the Marine Corps theme issue of proceedings, there is an article called Fighting and Deceiving to Get to the Fight by Lieutenant Colonels Brandon Turner and Jason Garza, which talks about this sort of thing. So what you're saying, and I want to make sure that the listeners know the degree to which this is a radical big idea that General Berger is positing here. Because as Bill asked, what are the JOs or what are your what is your peer group, the field grade uh, peer group, think about this idea? Because in spite of the title of the article, as I read it, this very much is the Marine Corps ceding authority to my eye. And so as you've just said, there are some consequences of, of doing that. And, and again, to my eye, among them that are most consequential are it could change the program of record and that's high stakes ball um so any concerns about force multiples or programs that might get canceled or <laughs> or necked down or that sort of thing it, it, anything on that front that uh, that you're hearing uh, might cause uh, somebody to pause oh absolutely um so in the CPG, um, General Berger is very clear that he is willing to consider uh, divesting of other capabilities in order to free up the resources needed to achieve this vision. And so you think sea control, you think sea denial, you think expedition advanced space operations, you, you think lighter, leaner, more agile, and oh, by the way, more seaworthy, things we can put on, uh, on Navy ships. And oh, oh by the way, um, designing other perhaps uh, connectors or other uh, naval vessels that might be able to support this, the things that are, you know, lighter, cheaper, more attritable. Uh, so how do we get there and how do we have a force that can do that? And, you know, everybody immediately goes to and the thought, uh, turns to, not to say that this is what's happening, but there's a lot of discussion on this point is, for example, uh, tanks, you know, marine armor. So you have an entire community within the ground combat elements that suddenly sees that, you know, that eye of, hey, who, who has to go? To make this thing real, hey, what's more uh, feasible to put onto ships to achieve some of these ends? Uh, and you see big, heavy platforms that are much more suited for um, more kinetic high-end conflicts uh, against another, you know, say, mechanized armored brigade or something of that nature. So Marine Corps armor suddenly sees itself in the, or its head on the chopping block, and that's making a lot of people uncomfortable. And let's say if I were an armor officer... And that had been my entire trade for my entire career. And suddenly you're telling me that might go away. Uh, that's going to cause me concern. And, and frankly, I'm not saying that's necessarily where it should go, but that's creating a lot of the discussion. Similarly, um, with sea control and sea denial concepts, when you describe that mission, it sounds an awful lot more like an artillery mission than an infantry mission. And I'm not saying that, you know, the Marine Corps infantry is going away by no means. Um, however, you might see, uh, some like part of our largest community 
be shrunk uh, to make more room for long-range precision fire capabilities, which is much more of an artillery-based mission. Alternatively, the infantry might be tasked with, um, you know, mission essential tasks or uh, TNR standards so that they can do artillery-type tasks. And this isn't without precedent. Uh, during the bulk of, you know, uh, OIF or Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, when the requirement for so much robust marine artillery uh, was diminished, many artillery units and others became provisional infantry. And you may see many marine infantry units becoming provisional artillery or at least doing artillery-type tasks to support sea denial and sea control. So uh, absolutely, to answer your question, uh, lots of uh, lots of communities are, are being looked at hard and uh, I'm not saying everybody's suddenly trying to justify their existence, but if you have uh, skin in the game, uh, you're absolutely interested in this conversation and what it might mean for force design. So a couple of months ago, we published a, uh, an article by a young Marine, Second Lieutenant James Winnefeld, uh, that was about how the Marine Corps could use littoral combat ships as sort of a cavalry force, uh, that their ability to operate fast in the littorals, uh, with maybe a, a platoon of Marines, maybe a Viper on board or, or, you know, a small helicopter debt. Uh, has that, I was curious, is that an article that you have seen and is that part of this debate or that kind of thing part of this debate about getting Marines onto ships in ways that are at least, uh, non-conventional over the last 20, 25 years? Again, the idea of informing amphibious capability. Uh, so the CPG discusses the idea, and let me take a step back. I actually listened to a podcast with that author. That was fantastic. It was a great piece. Um, but the CPG discusses the idea of seeking amphibious deployment by means other than L-class ships, uh, outside of, you know, amphibious assault ships, and in particular emphasizes that concept of the affordable and plentiful at the expense of the exquisite and the few. So instead of a few big, fat targets in the form of, say, LHDs, LPDs, LSDs, are there other cheaper, smaller, more survivable, distributable means by which we can get these horses ashore? So in a future fight, if we're going against a competent adversary, we have to consider that with A2AD, the defense is getting a pretty big advantage, at least in terms of operating in the vicinity of an, of an adversary's shore. So in, in certain working groups and OPTs in the Marine Corps, we're churning uh, to figure out the right fit for this. And uh, I will, once again, i, I got to highlight the, the training and education commander, the TCOM Warfighting Society, uh, and that chapter of the Warfighting Society is working on a number of problems, really, uh, for uh, development of white papers for the Commanding General of Training and Education Command um, to inform, again, what are TNR standards, what are the requirements, uh, and what kind of uh, connectors or, or vessels or ships might we need. And so, uh, uh, to your point, is this a job for the littoral combat ship? Um, and there's a lot of promise there, for sure, or in some capable, uh, in some missions, Perhaps is this even too big? Can we integrate uh, other vessels, aid, expedition or sea base? Is this still too much of a target considering Chinese and Russian capabilities? Or do we need to go smaller and leader? Hey, what can a Mark 6 patrol boat do for us? Do we need to go in that direction, spread load marine attachments uh, uh, on every ship or fleet in a different direction? Um, I think another uh, piece, another young officer wrote that I thought was on a proceedings was even looking at, you know, hey, jet skis. What can jet skis do? Uh, in an archipelago, what can that do for you as far as, uh, you know, shore-to-shore connectors? Do we need to design something else that fits that requirement entirely? Is that uh, new thing something that the Navy can, in fact, support? And then also, who's operating these new vessels or connectors? Is the Navy going to train and equip operators? Are they going to give the structure up for it? Or is the Marine Corps going to train its own expeditionary ship drivers, in particular, 
for uh, EABO mission. So uh, to answer your point as far as other articles um, or, or papers, the Teacup Warfighting Society is working on that very problem right now as one of their, uh, their later papers. So how do our international partners operate with their Marine Corps? Um, are, are they an extension of their navies or are they more an independent force? Is it a mixed bag? So every nation, they do it a little bit differently. So um, right now I'm actually in Mexico City uh, doing theater security cooperation with uh, our, our partners in the Mexican Navy uh, and discuss at length some of the ways that they employ uh, their Marine Corps. And you have to think each nation, uh, what is its strategic strategic interest? Um, are they more uh, globally focused or are they more internally focused? So the way the, the Mexican military employs its Marine Corps is remarkably different from the way we as the United States employ our Marine Corps and so on and so forth. Look at, you know, Indo-PACOM, um, how the, um, you know, the, the Royal Thai Marine Corps, how they operate compared to, again, any other partner or ally uh, in that neck of the woods. So it's really hard to make a a broad brush uh, uh, statement on how they'll tie into this based off of how they employ their Marine Corps. But I can't speak at length about just uh, security cooperation in general tying into Major, I'm curious. Uh, so one of the things that I suspect has been was interrupted at least for a month or so when when the uh, expected rise of Admiral Moran to be the chief of naval operations did not happen this summer, and then there was a you know a, a sort of a last minute search for a new CNO, and, and now Admiral Gilday's in the in the seat. Um, that likely delayed the next whatever comes after. Design 2.0. So Design 2.0, that for Mar- Design for Maritime Superiority, was Admiral Richardson's vision for the Navy and his strategic planning guidance uh, for the Navy. Uh, I don't think we've yet seen what where Admiral Gilday's staff is going and what he, you know hasn't put his imprint on a strategic vision yet. In your article, you say you know you make the the statement that it, we got to integrate and execute faster. And you say, you know, the Navy could ask the Marine Corps to stop or slow down from its dead sprint right now to build the, and design the future force, but that would be a mistake. So uh, you're, you mentioned that you're at Fleet Forces Command. You are in, in uh, communication with a lot of people at uh, Training and Education Command at Quantico. Are you starting to see the Navy integrate into this effort? Are you starting to get a sense of what Parts of this vision that the Marine Corps has, that General Berger has, uh, resonating in the Navy and resonating with where the Navy, you know, for future force planning is now going. To, to give credit where it's due, uh, there's certainly integration happening uh, at, at the highest levels. And I think most recently, the uh, the Marine Corps issued a force structure assessment. I believe it was issued by the the director of the Marine Corps staff, and it's got some pretty uh, aggressive timelines and tasks for various Marine Corps entities, uh, and it does note that these are to be done in concert with uh, Navy counterparts. Uh, and there's also other, you know, joint memos being signed, uh, and they're coming down. So at the high levels, that, that action is happening. But from my seat, from, from my perspective, it looks like that uh, I'm part of the big bureaucracy, right? I'm part of the uh, the action officer mafia, uh, part of 04s, 05s, with 06 review, trying to make these things happen. And it does not from my perspective, appear as though that same buy-in exists. And again, case in point, just, just an anecdote, but plenty of people can share similar anecdotes. Um, so in my position, they've recently stood up a naval integration plan, uh, and there's an OPT to support that just between, say, 
fleet forces in uh, FMF Lance or Fleet Marine Forces Atlantic slash Marine Forces Command. Uh, and so the intent is, hey, let's, let's get on board with this. Let's start working these pieces and see at least how these two organizations uh, can tie together. And so, you know, hey, you show up at the, at the LPC and you look around and amongst the 10 or so folks in the room, uh, there are nine Marines and uh, and one sailor. And though, you know, some of those Marines, they are representing uh, Navy organizations. Uh, again, to my previous point, I don't have the same legs to stand on uh, as a as a Navy officer does with the same experience and the same education, training, uh, and time in service. Just because, uh, again, the Marine Corps had me do different things than what a Navy officer would do. Um, and so this is true on, on pretty much most operational planning teams, cross-functional teams. You name the, the board or bureau or cell. Um, when it, it has to do with naval integration, um, it's largely Marines that are still still driving it. So where the where the sausage making occurs, again, you still see a lot more green uh, than blue. And, and again, in the in the Navy's defense, there's, there's the idea that hey, I'm not a Marine. I don't really know how to integrate you. So hey, Marine Corps. Please help figure it out. Uh, but again, we're, if you cut us loose to just drive off a cliff, uh, you know, we, we may very well do that and you might not be happy with the results. So I think it's incumbent that though we're seeing the direction happen at the highest levels, that, um, that right reinforcement happen at the levels where uh, the hard work is done to develop these concepts and ensure this integration can happen. And how about down at the tactical level? So some of these experimental concepts, you know, EABO, for example, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, and you mentioned the uh, article in the November issue uh, of Proceedings that nobody asked me but by Captain Jason Topshi, which said, you know, could jet skis be the next amphibious craft? And we mentioned uh, Second Lieutenant Winnefeld's piece about using Marines on LCSs as a cavalry sort of option at sea. Uh, are those sorts of experiments starting to happen or, or, you know, or is the, you know, current exercise uh, cycle for Navy Marine Corps, is it still very much MU focused, you know, get a, get a, you know, an L-class ship or, or several L-class ships, the Fibron, you know, with the traditional uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit and do what they've done for, you know, for time memorial. There's a lot of thought happening uh, to make this happen at the tactical level. And there is some experimentation. So I will say, you know, you know, some commanders, they, they see this happening and they're just experimenting of their own volition as, you know, a good commander, hey, he sees this guidance and, and across the Marine Corps generally, culturally, uh, we'll all get on board and, and try to make it happen. So you see even just you know, individual battalions or squadrons just, uh, you know, flying stuff onto a, a remote island or a little spot saying, hey, it's an expeditionary FARP, uh, and hey, this is this aligns with EABO. And though you can look at EABO and, and see some of those ideas in parallel, uh, they don't really answer the mail because of what EABO is supposed to do and in what environments it would be conducted. You know, it, it's, it's not going to – it would be a very permissive environment that would allow you to land Osprey's uh, on a on a fart, uh, you know, hey, the adversary's ability to actually engage those or deal with those uh, has already been written off. Um, but that experimentation is happening at other levels. Other uh, exercises or war games or experiments um, on the EABO side, some things are are happening, but there is a lot of disconnect with some Navy support, and a lot of that, you know, frankly, it's, it's task saturation. A lot of it is and there are other priorities, real world missions, and suddenly instead of getting uh, real forces that could support that experimentation, they have to go answer the call uh, for something else that's actually happening. Um, or, hey, we want to do this experimentation at BACOM with some of these islands, with some uh, 
some remote uh, just rocks in or around the South China Sea. Well, oh wait, Iran just did something that uh, is not ideal, and so suddenly that force gets re-fragged to go steam up the coast or in the vicinity of uh, Fifth Fleet waters for a while. So that can definitely hinder uh, some of that experimentation process. But I will say a lot of that, that sausage making, that hard work, is really happening with thought. And there's parallels between this and, you know, the start of amphibious warfare adoption, where literally Marine Corps schools in Quantico just shut down for a year, and all the students and staff just got retasked to develop the, uh, the tentative manuals for landing force operations. Um, and based off of just what smart people thought about and then wargamed and resources in classrooms, were able to develop a pretty robust manual that served us well, although it was rapidly refined after uh, it was tested in battle uh, in the Pacific. So right now, uh, again, to, to re-highlight the TCOM Warfighting Society, um, the, those, those concepts, EBO in particular, was most recently uh, put to uh, some pretty good development in an article that just hit the presses over at Marine Corps Gazette's web edition called Winning Sea Control. So the entire society helped develop this. Uh, I was one of the co-authors with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Nate Michalski and uh, Navy Lieutenant Joseph Hanacek. Uh, and it's a more robust version of a white paper that uh, the Warfighting Society developed for the Command General TCOM on that very subject. And uh, again, it builds a public, unclassified uh, discussion that can inform sea control and sea denial to include funding. And the intent was to also get this in front of, uh, you know, congressional leaders that are concerned with this because there's a lot of traction there as well. Uh, and frankly, it's perhaps one of the most important pieces that's recently been produced by the society. So I can't encourage you or your listeners enough to uh, to check it out. And it's available on the uh, the Marine Corps Gazette website under their their web articles. That's great. Yeah, we will check it out. And uh, thank you for mentioning uh, Lieutenant Joe Hanacek, who's written for Proceedings a number of times over the last couple of years. He's a, a yeah, another a uh, terrific thought leader uh, in the in the Navy. Uh, and I'm glad to know that he's part of this, you know, integration aspect. Running out of time here, I wanted to just uh, wrap up a little bit. Thank Major Brian Kerr, U.S. Marine Corps, for writing for the Marine Corps essay contest this year and winning. Uh, we did not mention at the start that the winning essay in this contest won $5,000. So this is a, a big advantage of uh, Naval Institute essay contest. We give real prize money. And we'd also like to thank BA Systems for sponsoring the essay contest. Exactly. Yeah, they've, they've sponsored this contest now for two years running and have, have committed for another year. So BA Systems, thank you. The essay is called, What Does the Navy Need from the Marine Corps? It starts on page 20 of the uh, November issue of Proceedings. And I'll also plug, uh, because we've mentioned it a couple times here, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, or EABO, is very much in this conversation. And if you look in the uh, November issue, starting on page 10, there's a two-page spread uh, in our new need-to-know column where we uh, graphically depicted what EABO is. And so that was written by one of our editors with Jim Cayella um, doing the, the illustration for it. But if you're curious, what is this term that the Marine Corps is throwing out, EABO, EBO, uh, if you want to see what it looks like and get a s- sense of it, page 10 and 11 of the November issue of Proceedings, uh, you can you can uh, t- you know take a look and, and dive into it. We got some help from that from a, a young Marine who's written for us uh, who is down at Quantico right now and helped bounce uh, ideas back and forth with, uh, with uh, Brian O'Rourke as he developed that. The other thing that we want to point out, and this is one of the benefits of membership, is access to the archives. So what Brian has described during the show is a what seems like a major inflection point potentially for the Marine Corps. There are other 
points in Marine Corps history, certainly in the 20th century, where there were similar challenges. Uh, so if you're a member, you have access to the Proceedings Archives, first issue 1874 until now. And I would point out 1925, Major General Lejeune wrote a definitive treatise about what the Marine Corps' utility is in the between the wars era. And then in 1948, and we've talked about this article before on the show, Lieutenant Colonel Cushman, later the 25th Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, General Cushman, wrote a, in the face of the Air Force's assertion, the brand new U.S. Air Force assertion that you didn't need aircraft carriers or the Marine Corps because of the existence of the B-26. Uh, B he wrote a brilliant piece that said, okay, a pretty short memory we have here about the Pacific Island Hopping Campaign. You're welcome, United States of America. You know, thank you, Marine Corps. And that environment is not over, right? And you know, again, the utility of the Marine Corps in Korea and Vietnam and everywhere else that they've been thriving and uh, and and winning um, is is self evident in history. So, again, only members have access to the digital archives. It's a wonderful resource. So, pitch for membership. So, Brian, have fun down there in Mexico City. Hopefully, the uh, air quality is decent. Is it is it all right right now? Or are you wearing a mask? Oh no, it's, it's great. That's fine. Okay, good to know. Um, and uh, keep writing for us and keep us plugged into uh, how this uh, sort of progresses in terms of thought leadership and, uh, and how it affects uh, what's going to be happening here with the Marine Corps in the, in the months and years to come. So thanks very much. Absolutely, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.